Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Children who are close contacts of a person with COVID-19 in school will no longer have to restrict their movements if they don't have symptoms. But some teachers say that's causing confusion. The only thing that's clear this morning is that one of the great weapons we had against this disease has been stripped away from us. And we did feel a certain amount of protection from the HSE and now we feel quite isolated in the schools. I will speak to the Children's Minister, Roderick O'Gorman. Also tonight, Germany says goodbye to Angela Merkel and looks to the future. We take a look at her far-reaching legacy. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, Jerry Hutch, also known as the Monk, could appear before the special criminal court in a matter of days over the Regency Hotel murder of David Byrne following a decision by Spanish courts to dismiss his appeal against his extradition. But the court ruled that the 58-year-old would be allowed to serve out his sentence in Spain if he is convicted. Well, let's get the latest now from our Virgin Media News crime correspondent, Sarah O'Connor, who joins me in studio. Uh, thanks for joining us, Sarah. Can you bring us the very latest on, on what happened today. Yes, Claire. well, this has all moved at a pretty rapid pace. I mean, uh, Jerry Hutch, also known as the Monk, was only arrested just under seven weeks ago in that Italian restaurant in Fangarola after that uh, surveillance operation for a time following uh, the European arrest warrant, which was issued for him here in March 2021. And this uh, ruling, this six-page ruling, which was made public by the three-judge court in Madrid today, but they actually decided on it on the 14th of September. This means that he is going to be extradited, that there are no other legal avenues open to him now. And an order was made on the 19th of August that he be extradited. He appealed it, or his lawyers appealed it, on a number of grounds, including they submitted that it uh, was strange that it took five years to issue that European arrest warrant. Uh, five years, of course, since the Regency Hotel murder of David Byrne in the Regency Hotel on the afternoon of the 5th of February uh, 2016. Uh, they also argued that the Special Criminal Court is incompetent to try the allegation against him. They also said that uh, he was the subject of death threats uh, and that uh, they, uh, those death threats uh, were real. And uh, they rejected all of the submissions made by his lawyers today in this uh, six-page ruling. But they did concede that uh, if he is convicted, uh, by the Special Criminal Court here that he can serve out his sentence in Spain because they accepted that he is a resident of Spain, that he has paid his taxes and that he has work ties to Spain. Of course, he was arrested there um, just over a month ago after that surveillance operation. 
Yes, uh, and of course, news of his arrest was very dramatic, but the, the actual footage of it from La Guardia Seville wasn't that dramatic. It happened on the evening around 7 o'clock of the 12th of August, just under seven weeks ago. Uh, Jerry Hutch would have walked through the busy streets of Fuengarola into that restaurant. You can see there footage of uh, uh, police from La Guardia Seville swooping on him. There's a guard, the president, who checked his uh, ID and then he was led away from the restaurant. He was looking at a menu when he was swooped on uh, with his wife, Patricia, and then he was led away from the restaurant to a waiting car. And then he spent two nights in a police cell in Malaga before being taken to uh, the jail in Madrid. Uh, the Soto del Real in Madrid. So does he have any more chances at this point, Sarah, to uh, appeal that extradition? So now uh, what they said today was uh, this was the end, that he's going to be handed over, um, that there are no uh, legal avenues open to him now to appeal. Uh, it looks like it's just going to be a matter of days uh, before he's extradited because the judges made this decision on the 14th of September, even though it was made public today. So now uh, Gardi will obviously collaborate with the Spanish police. He'll, uh, they'll either decide to put him on a commercial flight, he'll be led onto the flight first and then taken off last at Dublin airport before being transferred to the criminal courts or if it, this is deemed to be high risk then he'll be placed on a military plane and flown to Baldonnell airport but either way he's going to be transported to the criminal courts of justice uh, by armed escort where he will then appear before the three judge uh, special criminal court to face a charge of murder in connection with the Regency hotel attacks during which of course David Brankin and associate was shot dead in the reception of the hotel. Okay, Sarah, thank you for bringing us up to date on that tonight. Well, the rules have changed for children who are a close contact in school. From today, they will no longer have to restrict their movements if they do not have symptoms. A big change affecting thousands of children and their parents. Well, joining me to discuss this and more is Minister Roderick O'Gorman, Minister for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth. You're very welcome along tonight, Minister. Thanks very much, Claire. Um, big changes today for contact tracing for children in our schools and our childcare settings. But before I get to that, I want to ask you, how would you say the last 19 months have been for the young people in this country? Yeah, they've been really tough. Um, and we know that, I suppose, because parents have, have seen it in, in, in children um, as they tried and, and worked so hard to, to make sure that the, their kids could get online to, to continue to be, uh, to be educated. Uh, we've seen it in, in the context of young people who've missed out in so many of those opportunities of, of college and those kind of introductory parts of like the, the Debs's, the Freshers Week, things like that. We also know it in the context of the, the pressure on young people's mental health. I know my department has been engaging in a lot of research, uh, teaming up with, with NGOs like, uh, like Spun Out to actually research the impact on young people uh, and I suppose use that research in conjunction with other colleagues across government in targeting the, 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 the state's response to COVID, particularly for, for children and young people. We will get to that point when we look back and we review things. Mm -hmm. Are there things that you think should have been done differently that would have helped young people through this very difficult time, as you say? Well, look, I, I think the um, pressures that young people were under, particularly in terms of education, were really difficult. Uh, and I think we worked really hard to keep schools open, particularly in the second wave last October, and that was successful. I think then when the variants arrived in January, uh, everyone was left with, with, with no choice but to close schools because of the risk. Though I do recognise that uh, childcare professionals kept services open for uh, the children, most vulnerable children and, and, and children of essential workers. 
workers as well. So look, I, I think, you know, we address the various stages of the pandemic in, in terms of, uh, you know, dealing with the situation that, that, that we faced. But I think now is the opportunity in terms of, I suppose, the additional supports that Minister Foley is putting in for extra teaching hours in, in, in schools all over the country to, uh, in terms of my own work with, with youth services across the country and, and supporting them to try and get their volunteers back so they can continue to provide the really vital services that they do. Because one thing we did know is that young people who kept in touch with youth services, so their, 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 their clubs and that, uh, they actually, their mental health was impacted less than others during COVID. And a lot of youth services, they were really nimble. They moved all their services online and continued to engage in young people. And that was a real lifeline for a lot of young people. Yeah, okay. Um, arguably, though, there's a lot of catching up to do, isn't there? Yeah, a, a lot of catching up to do. And as I say, the uh, uh, steps Minister Foley took in terms of those, uh, those, those additional hours for, for schools all over the country, I think, uh, is, uh, is, is really important. And other uh, supports as well. I know uh, Minister Harris has put a significant amount of extra money into uh, mental health uh, services on campuses all over the country as well. And I think that is really important, recognising the real extra stress that was placed on young people across the pandemic. Um, as we've heard, we've seen a rapid turnaround in public health advice um, around contact tracing, particularly in our schools and childcare settings. Very strict rules to almost nothing overnight. Can you understand the confusion that's out there today? Look, I can absolutely understand that um, as we unwind the, uh, the, the, the rules that did take to keep us safe, people are nervous, people are, are seeing change. I was even in my own office today, we're starting to see people back for the first time, so it's different. We're doing this on the basis of public health and the public health guidance we've gotten from NEFET. Uh, and I wouldn't entirely agree with you when you say it's gone to, to almost nothing. I've been touring around some of the primary schools in my own constituency recently, and we still have the pods in place, we still have, you know, uh, teachers doing their, their breaks and shifts. We're, we're still seeing the, the, the hygiene etiquette. But if a child is sitting next to a COVID case, another child who has COVID, they'll, they'll go into school the next day. Uh, last week, that wasn't the case. You had entire classes out, in fact. And we did have entire classes out. And I think that's the, the real reason we've taken this, we've made, that, that this change has been made, because children, as, as we've spoken about earlier, have lost so much over the, the pandemic, uh, and they should get the benefit of the improved public health situation, just in the same way you and I are able to enjoy more things now over the last recent weeks. Specifically, though, the rule change around contact tracing. And I heard Professor Luke O'Neill talk about it at the weekend, saying we should keep up contract tracing. It's a, it's a really important weapon in our armour against COVID-19. And now we're dropping it. Why are we doing that? Is there a reason behind it? Well, look, where, where, where um, children are... Um uh, are symptomatic and obviously where, uh, where, where children are, are, are in a household where someone else has, has contracted COVID, those children will, be test will, will continue to be tested. So we will continue to get, uh, you know, have an observance in terms of, of, of instances. But I think this is, again, it is a recognition of the very improved public health situation, but also a recognition that those other measures I spoke of earlier that are in place in schools and in childcare facilities have delivered really low rates of transmission. It was down to 3% in childcare facilities last week, really low rates of positivity within these settings. How will we know if asymptomatic cases in children are rising if we don't have any testing if a child is a close contact of a COVID case, that they wouldn't get that PCR test 
regardless of symptoms or not, before returning to school? I think we'll know of it in context of the, 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 the instances within the wider community as well, that if children are, 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 are unwell and are, are, are spreading COVID within their families, that will be picked up within the wider public health testing that, that continues to go on. And what happens then? Well, what happens then, look, I, I suppose that we, we respond to any changes, but I think we should recognise that all the trends have been positive. We're seeing that decline. We'd all love it to be going a little bit faster, but we are seeing that continuous decline in the overall number of cases. And of course, perhaps that more significant decline in the number of people in ICU. So everything is going in the right direction. Uh, and we're unwinding restrictions bit by bit because there are other restrictions, as I said, in terms of you know the pods, which have been really important and the way they've been implemented by, by teachers, by school management and by childcare professionals. That's what's helped to get us to mm. this good situation right now. And why are schools not being instructed to tell parents if there is a COVID case in the class? Well, I suppose because that's someone's health information. That's, okay, that's their, say their say private a, say individual you're not information. You're identifying the child. You're just informing parents that there's a COVID case in the class so that they can then watch out perhaps for symptoms in the coming days, go and get their child tested should they wish to do so. Mm. About informing parents. So say there's a head lice case in class. Parents are immediately informed that day about that test. Check your child. Why wouldn't we do that for COVID cases? Well, look, again, I, th I think it is that issue of, of, I suppose, an element of privacy. Um, but I think, you know, I suppose there's also reality of this I mean, in that I, I, look, if, if, Jimmy, if Jimmy is out... It's privacy issue. But you're talking about this virus that, you know, we know how strict and cautious NEFID have been over the past 19 months in restricting all our lives. Mm -hmm. And now this 180 change mm. and the fact that parents are not being informed... Um, I, and, and schools do not need to inform parents if there is a case in a class. Yeah, well, look, I, I think there's also a reality to this in that if someone is out for uh, a, a significant people of, a period of time, I think there's going to be an understanding of, of you know, what, what, are, what are the reasons for this. So I, I, I don't see this as, you know, um, as, 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 as a huge issue in terms of, you know, the, 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 core, the core issue in terms of contact, contact tracing is, is what's most important here. Schools are worried that parents will, will drop their guard on this one uh, in, in watching out for symptoms, especially if they're not told about a case. They're worried about that they are now in a vulnerable position with no HSE support. What would you say um, to schools up and down the country tonight? Well, look, I, I don't think parents will drop their guard. Uh, I, I think everyone, I think parents more than everyone else wants to make sure uh, and, and know the importance of, of the, 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 the health of their children. What I would say is that uh, the, existing, the, the remaining public health precautions are really important in terms of pods, in terms of the you know, separation of staff, in terms of the, 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 the various health uh, and, and hygiene protocols that are there already. They will continue to be in place. They will continue to, uh, to, to restrict any, any potential spread within, uh, within schools. And they've been the ones that have been able to keep positivity rates in schools okay. so low up to this point. So is everyone at Cabinet happy with the way it's proceeding in schools, that it doesn't seem too premature, too rushed, or that, that guidelines and, and critically the communications, which the government has been blamed for 
you know, not having in place in many of these instances? Well, look, this is public health guidance and the Minister for Health received this guidance on, on, on Wednesday of last week. Um, and, you know, public health guidance is, is good and valid from when we receive it. Uh, and, it's and, up to and, the government to turn that yeah. around then and inform the public, parents and, and schools. And, and, and the public were, were informed on Wednesday of this change. I know within my own department, we immediately notified childcare providers that new guidance had come put in place. We took a day to prepare the protocols, to prepare FAQs for, for providers and I know something similar happened in, 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 in schools as well. But we also want, this is a positive step for children and we did want to give children the benefit of this loosening of the restrictions which ensures that their education won't be disrupted as quickly as possible. Um, Micheál Martin has said he has no issue in principle uh, with over fives being vaccinated about COVID. Do you have any issues in principle with it? Not in principle, so long as the public health guidance says that it's safe. So as we know, I think um, Pfizer and Moderna have both been uh, undertaking clinical trials. They're now looking for approval in the, uh, the, the regulatory system in the United States. Obviously, for something to happen here, it would require approval from the European Medicines Agency and NIAC here as well. That's, that's obviously a process. If they were both, if, if, if the, uh, any vaccine for, for five to 12 year olds got the approval there, I, I'd have no problem uh, with that. With that are you principle. uncomfortable though with that conversation happening when there are so many countries in the developing world where the vaccine programme just doesn't exist? Mm. And Ireland's doing its share in terms of addressing that really, really important question in terms of a donation of a million vaccines to the COVAX pro uh, programme, uh, in terms of, I know, uh, the Taoiseach engaged with the Vietnamese Prime Minister and has um, committed to engaging with the EU because Vietnam is one country who's finding it difficult to source okay. vaccinations. So I think in, in terms of you know, global justice, but also from a public health point of view in that if COVID continues to, um, you know, run uncontained un in certain countries, the risk of a new variant forming yes. is actually so greater. So is it more important, therefore, to get those countries vaccinated than the over fives here? Well, I think... Ireland's focus in terms of providing that, th those, those, uh, those million vaccines to the COVID, co the COVAX programme demonstrates that we're focused on that. The issue of the uh, of potential vaccines for, for five to 12 year olds is something that is a distance away yet in terms of having to go through those full um, assessments okay, so by the European Medicine Day. I, I, I would say it's very unlikely that we'd see it this side of Christmas. Okay. Uh, just on to a matter that has been raised in the last few days around a pandemic bonus. Uh, your leader Eamon Ryan saying this evening that bus and retail workers may be included in that reward scheme. What do you think of that? Well, look, I, I think we're all aware of people in, I suppose, as members of cabinet, we're all aware of the people in our particular sector who did so much during the, during the crisis. And I, I think of childcare professionals. I, 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 think, of, I think of people in, in, in youth services Should and social workers. Look, I, I think this does have to be looked at in the round. Uh, and I know that it'll be addressed in, in the context of, I know there's, there's discussions in terms maybe of, of, of bank holidays to recognise what uh, recognise the additional work that that that, that happened? Mm. So look, I, I think that'll be a matter. It'll probably be discussed in the context of of, of, of the budget, uh, and and I'm sure proposals will come to us in cabinet. Will in you be putting forward proposals? You mentioned there about childcare workers 
Will you be putting forward proposals that they should be rewarded similarly to healthcare workers, to bus workers, to retail workers and others in the public sector? Well, I'll be honest, in terms of childcare professionals, my focus with them is ensuring that they're rewarded all the time for their work because, as you well know, they're not paid to, to an amount that, that, that recognises the work they do all the time. So I'm not just looking for once-off recognition, I'm looking for better pay for the sector, which is why I brought in a, a joint labour committee to yeah. negotiate improved wa wage rates for the sector. Okay. Um, just on the issue, actually, of the childcare sector, there's a, a, a lot, a, a bigger push now than ever, I would say, for a publicly funded model of childcare to, to come into play. Will you be pushing and prioritising that um, at the cabinet table? Isn't that the way we should go when we look at the fact that we are bottom of the table? in the OECD when it comes to funding, publicly funding childcare in this country? Well, I'd be looking for significantly increased investment in the sector. Uh, and that's what I've indicated. That's my priority in these budgetary negotiations. Uh, and I want to see that delivering on lower, uh, lower costs for parents, better pay for childcare professionals, keeping our services sustainable and delivering better quality for children's education. So is education. that fresh fees across the board? Can parents expect to see a change in those fees post-budget? Well, all, all those four areas that I listed are interlinked, but I'm looking for a, a significant increase in investment in the area of childcare and affordability it will be something we can deliver from that. Okay, Minister, thank you for that. My thanks to Roderick O'Gorman. We will have much more on this topic after the break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. Now let's discuss the issue of children and COVID more. I'm joined by Sinn Féin's Kathleen Funchen, virologist Gerald Barry and parenting consultant and lecturer Mary O'Kane. You're all very welcome along to the show tonight. Gerald, I want to start with you. Professor Philip Nolan of Neffet saying at the weekend, defending against any claims that there's a secret policy to let it rip in schools by changing all these rules around contact tracing um, in order this idea that immunity will be built if we, you know, remove the, 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 the testing for potentially asymptomatic cases. Um, but how would you describe this move and this, this change in policy? I would describe it as let it rip. I think that's a fair, an unfair way of describing it because that's not what they're doing. Um, if you're symptomatic, you still have to get tested. So it's not like it's a complete free for all in schools. Um, you also have to acknowledge that schools themselves are doing an awful lot to control this. 
Um, I think schools have done a brilliant job up to this point. But there's no doubt um, they're not going full, full guns blazing on this thing. You know, if they really wanted to stop chains of transmission, they would continue to an extent with contact tracing. They would keep an element of testing involved in this, even in asymptomatic children. We know that somewhere between 50 and 70% of children that get COVID are asymptomatic. We know that asymptomatic children can transmit this virus, not as well as symptomatic children, but they can still transmit it. So although they describe schools as a safe environment, I think it's better to describe it as a safer environment than say a household, because transmission is less. But transmission isn't zero. Transmission does happen in schools, um, not at a huge rate, but it does happen. So to turn around and say, we're not going to test or we're not going to trace a cohort, I think is kind of uh, not a very good, not a sensible idea. So you believe that asymptomatic cases, so close contacts, displaying no symptoms should get a PCR test regardless and should be informed that they are close contacts and therefore be able to get tested? I think taking them out of school for 10 days is not a good idea because the impact on education is too great. But I think also um, not doing anything with them is also not a good idea. I think there has to be a halfway house here. I think you keep them in school and you either ask them to PCR test or you introduce something uh, as revolutionary as antigen testing. I was just going to say <laughs> antigen know, testing. I mean, it's, I'm saying revolutionary, but it's a no-brainer. Isn't there a point here that yeah, it, it's an idea to do I mean, here? I mean, the argument against antigen testing is always that it's not reliable. It, well, that's just not true. You know, it's just not true to say that antigen testing isn't reliable. It's not true to say that it isn't effective and can be useful um, in, in these situations. And should, in my opinion, if I had a close contact that was asymptomatic, I would antigen test them every morning. If they're clear, go to school. If they're not, stay at home. That's, that's what I would do. I think it's a sensible thing. I think it's a halfway house between doing what we were doing and doing what they're proposing to do from today. Uh, Mary, you've been hearing from a lot of parents and teachers who are worried about this change. What are they saying yeah. to you? I think a lot of parents are worried about the fact that they're no longer being informed. And I think as a parent myself, you know, we have been used to taking personal responsibility. And particularly for those who have a vulnerable family member, a vulnerable extended family member, the, the decision, that removal of responsibility, I'm not being informed that my child is a close contact. I don't have the ability now to use that antigen test, which I may have used. But what I, what I really feel is, as parents, to make informed decisions, we need to be told. If there were head lice in a class, if there were chickenpox in a class, if there were impetigo, we get a text saying, no GDPR issue, we're just saying there is a confirmed case in your class and we're letting you know. You then can take personal responsibility with the knowledge of your own family situation. What about the issue that uh, Minister O'Gorman brought up there, that actually it's a privacy issue and if there's a COVID case, um, the class shouldn't be informed because there's a case, there's a child at the heart of this? I really struggle with that one, Claire, because if there's headlights, there's a privacy issue. Well, you just get a text saying there is a confirmed case. That's all the information you need. You don't need to know who it is. Um, Kathleen, what's Sinn Féin's position on this public health turnaround? Okay, so I think if you look at the start of this pandemic, one of the first things we heard was test, trace, isolate. And I don't, don't think it makes sense to all of a sudden have the contact tracing totally gone in schools. I would largely agree with a lot of what Gerald is saying. I think there has to be some sort of a happy medium. I do understand that 10 days is a huge amount of time. 
for any of us that, you know, struggled as yes. parents with homeschooling, you know, I, I personally found that very difficult. And we all know that kids missed out, not just academically, but socially, their mental health, their well-being was affected. We don't want to see kids missing out on school unnecessarily. However, one of the key things in combating this virus is actually contact tracing. And I think something like antigen testing should be looked at. I don't think it should just be total cut off. It doesn't really make sense. We're coming into the winter months where our health services are struggling. Any Anyway, we're doing so well in terms of our vaccination rates and in terms of how we're dealing with the virus, it would seem, you know, a pity and those words don't even go strong enough to just totally cut off that now. I, I do think there needs to be a happy medium um, and I certainly don't buy into there's a privacy issue because I know certainly last year, you know, you would get a general text or an email to say there's a confirmed case of COVID. If your child is considered a close contact, you will hear and you didn't know who the child was. And even in some rural schools, people wouldn't know who that was that was. So I don't think that that's really acceptable. And you will have, you know, potentially rumour mills going around in schools now in relation to COVID yeah. cases. You're probably better off to be honest and upfront about all of that with, with parents and with students. Um, and I think something like antigen testing could be the key. Lots of other European countries are using that. There is nothing stopping a parent from doing an antigen test on their child at home before they go into school. If no, there, there, no, there certainly isn't. But I mean, we're talking about, you know, best practice. And I think that that's something that we should look at. I don't think it makes sense just to say now you don't need to tell or inform parents or inform the students and uh, kids don't need to stay home. Okay, to a certain extent, we all welcome the kids not having to stay home part. However, we do not want a situation where we're going to go backwards with this virus when we have been doing so well, particularly in the last number of months and weeks. So I think it's important that there is some level of uh, you know, t testing and contact tracing. And I think, you know, that this sort of all just came in overnight, really, and it's okay. not really acceptable. Now, the date of October 22nd has been teed up on the date that a lot of these systems and a lot of the all of the restrictions that are currently in place are essentially going to be removed. When it comes to contact tracing, because as of now, I think you can still book in to, to get a test, should you wish to, are you worried? Um, you won't be able to do that. Are we looking at a kind of a risky time coming up to the... Christmas season? I, I suppose, <laughs> we, who knows? <laughs> you know, we actually don't know at this point what's going to happen. We have really high levels of vaccination in the country. I think the hope is, from the HSE's point of view at least, that what they're telling us is the hope is that vaccination will solve all problems. Um, it's very unlikely to solve all problems, to be honest. Um, but we actually don't know what's going to happen coming into the winter. We know respiratory viruses in general uh, tend to be a lot worse in the winter. They spread much more efficiently. And we know coronaviruses in general peak around December and January. Um, what will happen this winter is a little bit of an unknown. Um, in my own heart of hearts, um, I would prefer to maintain things until we know, rather than anticipating that and hoping that things will go okay. But when will we know? I think we'll know when we get through this winter, um, because once we get through this winter and we see the impact of vaccination during um, high levels of, one might call it, higher risk transmission during a winter period where respiratory viruses generally transmit better, if we can get through that and vaccinations can hold up against that, then I think we know that vaccinations can really bring us out of this problem. And is the flu likely to be back with a bang this winter? Unknown again. I think last year we know rates of flu were very, very low. That's probably because COVID was spreading so dominantly in the country, but also, you know, the level of masking, the level of uh, social distancing, etc., that was going on. Um, if we go back to normal life, if mask wearing, for example, reduces, um, potentially respiratory viruses like the flu 
RSV we know is spreading a, a lot of cases of RSV in kids at the moment. Potentially other respiratory viruses might add to cases of COVID that are spreading in the country. So we really don't know. It could be worse, but actually it could be better. It's, I would say, impossible to predict at this point. There's plenty of unknowns. Um, one thing you're worried about, Mary, was around vulnerable relatives and then a child potentially bringing that into a, a household when they're asymptomatic. Yes, and this was something parents were saying to me. Um, I had a huge response from parents saying, you know, if, if I'm informed, if I know, if my child comes home, say, for example, if my sister has a newborn baby, if I'm told my child has close contact, I may just decide to avoid seeing her for a week. Mm -hmm. If I have a friend who's undergoing chemotherapy for breast cancer, will I let my child have a sleepover in her house? I know I might put that off. Well, I think, you know, I think those the child decisions. is going to be informed, I think, if they're a close contact. But if they're asymptomatic, to still go to school, as far as I'm aware. As far as I'm aware, the schools are not notifying parents that your child is a close contact. So I can be, my little girl can be in a pod with another child, and if they're five, they're all over each other, as five-year-olds should be. We don't want to discourage them from mm. hugging each other and connecting. That's really important. But I'm not going to be necessarily to be informed that there is a case, a confirmed case in that class. Are you worried about the long-term impact of all of this on kids in general? The discussions around the virus for the last 19 months, how we're telling younger yeah. children about what's going on and how much of that information they're retaining and then potentially bringing into, you know, these really critical uh, years in their development. Yeah. Funny, Claire, the little ones I'd be slightly less concerned about, they feed off their parents. So if, if we are calm, they'll be calm. I would be more worried about the teenagers. They have lost out on so much. The Leaving Cert students coming up, I'm very concerned about that group. The sixth years this year, the sixth years last year had a difficult year. It's the older children I would actually be more concerned about. They've missed out on contact with their peers. The little ones, if we're calm, it helps them. They feed off us. Okay, uh, Kathleen, I want to ask you about this idea. Uh, Micheál Martin was asked about vaccines for over fives. Um, wh what would you think of that idea? He said that he was no issue with it in principle. Um, would you agree with that? Well, I don't definitely have any difficulty or issue with the, the vaccination programme for, I think it's five to 11-year-olds. However, I do think it's, you know, a little bit contradictory to say that they feel things are so going well in kind of the children's population in terms of COVID that you don't need to do the contact tracing, yet they feel that this group does need to be vaccinated. I think that maybe we should be concentrating on the vulnerable, the medically vulnerable, the booster jabs. And I also think we need to look at our international responsibilities in terms of globally, this is a global virus. And I think we need to look at that. But I just want to make the point, I think it's great to hear the discussion tonight on children because there hasn't really been very much discussion on the impact of COVID and on children, on their well-being. And I think that's brilliant. But we've heard a lot about businesses and they're all very important, but it is good as well in terms of, you know, the, the mental health of children and the well-being of them, not just academically, but of all the various activities yeah. that they missed out on and I think it's really important that we remember that and that children are, are part of this discussion when we're talking about a recovery that there's a recovery for children as well. Okay and we actually got a tweet to that effect from Philip McCann who said stop spending money on surveys to see what effects Covid has had on young people because at the end of the day the government won't spend money to implement any of these recommendations. Well I think um, the Minister did say they do want to implement recommendations and they are thinking um, of the children at the heart of this. Uh, we'll have to see what comes of the budget in terms of additional spend. Um, now, uh, just on the matter though of that vaccine, Gerald Barry, um, 
do you think it can be justified to vaccinate five to 11 year olds? I didn't want to come on and say, I don't know a lot of times, <laughs> Claire, to be honest. But <laughs> again, I'm a little bit, I don't know at this point. I think uh, the use of vaccination has to be justified. It has to be based on evidence. There has to be benefit to it, both to the person receiving the vaccine and arguably to the population as a whole. The evidence currently is not there to say that we should be vaccinating five to 12 year olds. I think as the evidence builds, then potentially yes. But at this point, if I was asked, would I vaccinate my eight year old or my six year old? I'm not sure I would actually at the moment. But and as the evidence, I think on two grounds, I think arguably if the case is still open as to whether it would be beneficial to them because the rate of hospitalization, for example, in that age group is so low. Um, and also there's still a question mark over the safety of it. Now I'm not putting hopefully doubt in people's minds about this. It's just that the evidence hasn't been built yet. The studies still have to be carried out correctly in large numbers of children of that age to tell us that it is safe. Once those studies are carried out and if it reports that they are safe to use, then absolutely um, there's an argument to say we should use it or at least look at using it. But at the moment that evidence isn't quite there. So until that's there, I don't think we can really even start to discuss uh, uh, using it in that age court. Um, and I think things like, you know, the most vulnerable people in the world are the people that don't have any vaccine at all, particularly adults that are vulnerable. We need to be looking beyond our own borders and looking at countries in Africa that you know, 5% vaccination rates. Uh, I think that's where we need to be putting our focus at, the, at the moment. Low. Okay, thanks to you all. We'll leave it there. My thanks to Kathleen Funchen, Mary O'Kane and Gerald Barry. And coming up, Germany says, Auf Wiedersehen to Angela Merkel. We take a look back at her 16 years in power. Welcome back. Now it's all change in Germany as the country says goodbye to Angela Merkel. For the first time in nearly two decades, her CDU party did not top the polls in a general election. They came in second, the centre-left SPD party, in a race that was incredibly close. Olaf Scholz is now the favourite to be the new leader of Germany, but it is complicated. He now has to try and form a coalition with other parties and in Germany that doesn't come easy. For Angela Merkel, it's the end of an era. She's led Germany since 2005 through a financial crisis, a migrant crisis, Brexit and COVID-19. Well, I'm joined by Michael Collins, the Director General of the IIEA and a former Irish ambassador to Germany, and in studio by Thomas Doibler, Assistant Professor in Politics at UCD. Um, Thomas, welcome to the show. I want to start with you and just on this really poor showing by the CDU. People may have been surprised at that, given Angela Merkel's popularity at the helm for 16 years? Yes, I think they were, especially when you look back just a few months ago, because at some point the CDU was in the lead with more than 20 percentage points. But basically, from mid-July on, they, they just started to continuously lose in the polls. And of course, it's, there, it, there may be different factors explaining that, but especially what the exit polls uh, yesterday also suggest is that a lot of it has to do with the very poor personal ratings of the main candidate, Armin Laschet. Okay, so Olaf Scholz now has come out on top, but it is going to be tricky forming that coalition. What sort of challenges do they face in, in navigating through those government talks in the coming weeks? Well, the, perhaps the curious thing is that actually the, the SPD, they came out as the largest party 
and they made significant gains of around 5.5 percentage points, but they're still not necessarily in the driving seat. Because, so nobody really wants to continue the Grant coalition because the SPD and the Christian Democrats, they are sort of natural opponents, a bit like in the Irish case where the two big parties are also, or formerly big parties, are also not necessarily happy together in a coalition. So nobody really wants to continue with that coalition. And that implies that there will be a three-party government, which will include the Liberals and the Greens. And there are simply huge policy differences between those two. And now they need to find together first, and then they either need to join in with the Christian Democrats or with the Social Democrats. Okay, so a lot to work out in the coming weeks. Uh, Michael Collins, I want to bring you in here. Um, as former Irish ambassador to Germany, you had dealings with Angela Merkel, uh, and a lot has been said about the mark she's left on Germany and indeed Europe through her 16 years. How do you remember her? Well, I remember her with with great um, um, great fondness and a great sense of, of the role that she has played in uh, not just in Germany over the last 16 years, but also in Europe. Um, I, I think we can be um, whatever shortcomings people might be able to identify in the course of those 16 years. I think she would be uh, forever identified with with offering and and, and generating stability, uh, not just in Germany, but in the heart of Europe as well. At a time when there was lots of turbulence in the neighbourhood. And without a steady Germany, without a steady um, administration in Germany, we don't have a steady Europe. And if we don't have a steady Europe, that would be very bad news for Ireland. So I think we we can look back with some um, appreciation of, of what it takes to be the chancellor of a country as big as Germany for more than 5,000 days and look with some level of admiration on how she's done that and also um, ended her reign, if I may put it like that, uh, still re retaining a level of popularity, which uh, is was beyond indeed any of the existing candidates who were in the election. Uh, obviously, she wasn't the candidate in the election, but still, uh, she's somebody who's uh, still remained appreciated in Germany, but she's particularly well appreciated uh, outside of Germany, I think. What were the key points, do you think, in her 16 years? And we mentioned Brexit there and the migrant crisis, the bailout, indeed, um, that, that you think really you know, made her stand out or her decision-making um, really came to the fore that impacted greatly on, on where Europe was going. Well, I, well I, first of all, I think she she was a steady, calm voice in the middle of Europe. I mean, she she was not offering uh, you know um, extravagant designs. I know much to the frustration of the French at times, but I think the standout moment for me, and I was there at the time, was was uh, 2015 when uh, she she single-handedly um, um, uh, managed and decided. Uh, to allow uh, one million immigrants into Germany in a very short space of time. Uh, it wasn't a great moment for European solidarity, but she did it nonetheless. And I think it's one of the defining moments of her of her time as Chancellor to take upon herself that responsibility uh, in the face of, of, of some, uh, ultimately of some opposition. But uh, she navigated that space very well. And I think that would be one of her great legacies. Also, she's leaving Germany, not without its problems, but uh, in pretty good financial shape. And, and a country far stronger, indeed, than when she started in 2005. So I think I think she has uh, an extraordinary legacy, uh, not without its blemishes, but by and large, overall, I think uh, Germany has been very lucky uh, that they've had somebody of, of Merkel's uh, calm and stature, and also Germany and by, uh, Europe and by extension Ireland has been 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 fortunate in the process. Uh, so, Michael, what's the significance of this election result and what it means for um, you know beyond Germany, for the EU, for Ireland in particular? 
Well, I think it's very good news for, for the EU because, I mean, obviously um, a, a Chancellor um, uh, Schultz, if it is to be Chancellor Schultz, then there's every reason to believe that I think, unless things go very badly wrong, it should be. I think he's going to, you know, to, to, to offer that level of continuity in terms of Germany's uh, relationship with the European Union. And that also applies to the other two parties who may be in government with, with him, the Greens and the FPD. So I think it's, it means good for Europe. Um, I think uh, it remains to be seen who's in power in France when the time comes. Uh, obviously, it's very important for Europe that that Franco-German relationship is strong and, 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 and coherent. And if it is, it's good for obviously that relationship in itself and good for Europe. But beyond that, uh, it's also, I think it augurs reasonably well for the transatlantic uh, relationship as well. I saw, I think, President Biden last, Biden last night, uh, you know, suggesting that 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 a, a chancellor shows us somebody who could deal with, and there's every reason to believe that he could. And indeed, even the Greens, who at times people might have believed might be a difficult dimension in the transatlantic relationship, and they've gone out of their way to suggest um, during the course of the election, indeed before the election campaign, uh, that the transatlantic relationship is something that they would they would be invested in and be given priority to. So I think it all augurs well for stability, uh, for continuity, uh, for steadiness, and and for that I think we can be. I mean, obviously Germany makes its own choices, but. I think we could be uh, reasonably grateful that they've made a very steady choice okay. indeed. Michael, uh, Thomas, from what Michael is saying there, it doesn't look like there's going to be much change in terms of the way Germany does things. Would you agree that under Olaf Scholz, he was, of course, Angela Merkel's finance minister, that he will maintain that financial um, prudence and all those things that Germany and Europe has been used to uh, over the past 16 years? I mean, that is a very interesting question because obviously within uh, these three parties, whichever three parties uh, will finally make it, there, there, are a lot, there are lots of divisions in terms of economic policy and also, so when you look at the Social Democrats and the Greens, they certainly want to increase taxes for high earners. Um, especially the Greens, they have very ambitious plans. You know, they say, okay, the, the country needs innovation, but a lot of the things that they want to do, of course, they imply spending money. And either that means raises taxes or you need to go to the markets to get the money. Whereas the liberals, they have completely opposite views. They say, okay, we don't want any tax increases uh, and uh, we want to stick mm. to, the, to the balanced budget provision that is in so the constitution. Going to win out? That is very hard to predict because. They, they need to find compromises one way or another. Uh, it was a relatively poor showing for the AFD. Uh, that's the far-right party in Germany. Does that show that that support is strongly receding now? I probably wouldn't go as far. I mean, they lost uh, 2.3 percentage points. They are now down to 10.3% nationally. Um, but there are definitely, there is a big difference between East and West Germany. So when you look at the five East German states, um, they had results between 18 and 24.6% there. So really um, the support for the AFD in the East is at a very high level, which partly also has to do with the fact that, um, well, they are, they are seen as or used as a kind of protest party. So that feeling that um, East Germans are second-class citizens or that they, they tend to be neglected. I think AFD has, a, has taken over a lot of support from the, from the left party in that regard.
And that explains why AFD is so strong there and the left has lost a lot in East Germany. Is it certain that the SPD, that party led by Olaf Scholz, who came out obviously as the front runner and the winner, um, is, it, is it certain that they'll actually form the government? I, I wouldn't say so, because if, if the liberals uh, will not agree somehow to, to, to raise more money and they insist on, on joining with the Christian mm. Democrats, it may be possible that they can buy off the Greens with, with some compromises in terms of climate okay. policy. Okay. All right. We'll wait and see. My thanks to Michael Collins, who joined us via Skype, and Thomas Doibler. That's it from us. Our program is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.